Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How you doing today, my good friends? <clears throat> my apologies once again for uh, making you wait a week. I apologize for that. Just got busy on some things. and But thank you again for stopping by today. Government and all of its big talking heads that write and enforce all the laws that we all adhere to seems to sometime overstep some bounds when doing so. <clears throat> I think we can all agree to that. Sometimes we complain about all the hoops we have to jump through just to maybe legally add a deck to our house or something similar to that. Wasn't always like that, folks. These regulations came to be because an increasing number of things started happening that didn't just affect those who did the building of whatever it was, but everybody else that might be in the path of the catastrophe that might it might create doing so. Come on in, set a spell, let me tell you one about one such incident that uh, might have led to some of these regulations. Johnstown, Pennsylvania sets in the Appalachian Mountains east of Pittsburgh. In 1889, its main source of prosperity was its coal and steel industry. The high steep hills and the narrowing Kanama Valley and the Allegheny Mountains to the east kept the development of Johnstown close to the riverfront areas. The valley had large amounts of runoff, rain, and snowfall. The area surrounding the city was already prone to flooding due to its location on the rivers. Adding to that, slag from the iron furnaces of the steel mills was dumped along the river to create more land for the building. The artificial narrowing of these riverbeds just left the city even more plump, prone to flooding. Now, the Kanama River 
immediately downstream from Johnstown was already hemmed in by steep mountainsides for about 10 miles. Today, there's a roadside plaque alongside Pennsylvania Route 56, which proclaims that this stretch of the valley is the deepest river gorge in North America, east of the Rocky Mountains. Well, I hadn't personally seen it, but I'd, uh, I would certainly like to and compare it to the new river gorge, because I think it could probably give it a run for its money. Now, being that the area was prone to the possibility of flood, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania went way up above the city and built the South Fork Dam between 1838 and 1853 as part of a cross-state canal system. This made Johnstown the eastern terminus of the Western Division Canal, which supplied water to Lake Kanama, the reservoir created by the dam. As railroads took over from canal barge transport, the Commonwealth abandoned the canal and sold it to the Pennsylvania Railroad. The dam and lake were thrown in as part of the deal, and the railroad sold them to a private to some private parties. Uh, Henry Clay Frick led a group of Pittsburgh speculators, including Benjamin Ruff, to purchase the abandoned reservoir and modified and converted into a private resort lake for their wealthy associates. Speculators. Oh, that was what real estate folks was called back in. You was a speculator if you bought land on the cheap and intended to sell it for profit or improve it in some way to make a little bit of money out of it. Now, Henry Clay Frick was an industrialist, financier, and an art patron. He founded the H.C. Frick and Company Coke Manufacturing Company. It was the chairman of the Carnegie Steel Company and played a major role in the formation of U.S. steel manufacturing. He also financed the construction of the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Reading Company. Sounds like that guy was a walking sack of $100 bills, don't he? Probably because he was. And no wonder. Coke was made by heating coal in a vacuum, cooling it, and then sending it out as more purified fuel. Of course, that was the most desired fuel in the steel industry at the time, and he pretty much sold it faster than he could make it. Many of these Pennsylvania speculators, or Pittsburgh speculators, I'm sorry, as they were known, were connected through business and social links to Carnegie Steel. Their development of the property included lowering the dam to make its top wide enough to hold a road and putting a fish screen in the spillway wouldn't want any of the fish to get away, would we? So workers lowered the dam, which was, had been 72 feet by 3 feet, and now I'm not a dam engineer, but it would seem that these alterations might just increase the possibility of dam failure to me. But that wasn't enough. A system of relief pipes and valves, which were part of the original dam system, had been dug up and sold off for scrap metal, and they weren't replaced, so the club had no way of lowering the water level in the lake in case of an emergency. Now, that sounds ominous, don't it? And to ice the cake of death, they had no engineer involved in any of the construction. They didn't properly seal any of the new construction with clay, as was done with the original construction done by the state. In fact, they were just throwing whatever they could find in with the dirt to fill and let it just let it ride fill it being with dirt and trash and whatever they wanted to throw in there. Now, being that the amount of water held in this reservoir was about the same amount of water that flows over Niagara Falls in 36 minutes, 
I'd say that your plan was a, a slight bit hair-brained, wouldn't you say? The Pittsburgh speculators then built cottages in a three-story clubhouse to create South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, an exclusive and private mountain retreat for the upper crust only. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I pictured a bunch of little Lord Fauntleroy's running around dressed up in their hunting and fishing clothes, and depending on which one they thought they was doing at the time. But before long, membership grew to include more than 50 wealthy steel, coal, and railroad industrialists. Like Lake Canama at the club site was 450 feet in elevation above Johnstown. And the lake was about two miles long and one mile wide, 60 feet deep. That plus about five miles or more of backed up river water behind it. Wouldn't you know it? On May 28, 1889, a low-pressure system formed over Nebraska and Kansas. It took it two days to arrive in the Appalachian Mountains of Pennsylvania, where it had developed into what would be termed the heaviest rainfall event that had ever been recorded in that part of the U.S. That's what you call being lucky on the wrong direction, I guess. The U.S. Army Signal Corps estimated that up to 10 inches of rain fell in 24 hours over the area. During the night, small creeks became roaring torrents, ripping out trees and dragging debris for miles. It was a toad strangler and a half, folks. Telegraph lines were knocked down and rail lines were washed completely away. Before daybreak, the Kanama River had ran through Johnstown, or that ran through Johnstown, was about to jump out, out of its banks for so much waterfall. On the morning of May 31st, in a farmhouse on a hill just above the South Fork Dam, Elias Unger, president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, woke up to a sight of Lake Kanama so swollen after a night long of heavy rainfall that it actually scared him. Mr. Unger ran outside in the still pouring rain to have a closer look at the situation and saw that the water was nearly running over the dam. He quickly assembled a group of men to save the face of the dam by trying to unclog the spillway. It was blocked by the clogged up fish screen, of course, and debris caused by the now raging water. Other men tried digging a ditch at the other end of the dam on the western abutment, which was lower than the dam crest. The idea was to let more water out of the lake and try to prevent it from running over the top and weakening the dam because, well, that's exactly where they'd rebuilt the dam with pretty much trash and dirt. Needless to say, they couldn't do a thing in the world with any of it. It was pretty much a big glop of mud by then, and that, my good friends, wasn't a good thing at all. Nonetheless, most of the workers stayed on top of the dam, some trying to plow the mud to try to help, while others tried to pile mud and rock on the face to save the wall that was eroding away like a rope made out of sand. I don't think that plowing and scraping was going to help anything at this point. I'd say it's time to send somebody down the mountain to tell folks to run for it. Well, John Park, an engineer for the South Fork Club, who from what I could gather was there to design a sewer system because good folks about the club were just fed up with using outhouses. He went to have him, have himself look at the whole mess. After everybody there realized that he was an engineer, 
not a damn engineer, mind you, but an engineer nonetheless. It seemed like he was suddenly promoted to the HNWIC. That's head nutball what's in charge for those living outside Appalachia. I'm pretty sure that after seeing what was going on, that's likely something that he wanted nothing to do with. But it seemed like everybody that didn't need an engineer during the construction of the whole impending catastrophe kept looking to him for answers. He first considered cutting through the dam's end where the pressure would be less and create another spillway, but eventually decided against it as that would have probably quickly eroded into failure of the dam. Twice order, under orders from Mr. Unger, who was now pale as a sheet and a full-blown panic, Mr. Park rode down on horseback to a telegraph office in the nearby town of South Fork to, South Fork to send warnings to Johnstown, explaining that a dangerous situation was unfolding at the dam. Well, that seems to be the thing to do since the telegraph lines were down, don't it? Unfortunately, Mr. Park didn't personally take a warning message to the telegraph tower. He sent somebody else to do it. No point in him riding around in the rain and getting all wet after he just got dried off from barking orders at Donald's damn face scissor. The warnings received by the Johnstown Telegraph Office were filed in the trash can after the operator deemed him to be another hoity-toity rich guy up on the hill at the hunting club trying crying wolf again, and so they weren't passed to anybody or any authorities or anybody at all. As a matter of fact, they just were dropped in the trash can. There had been so many of these things that came down that folks just were tired of listening to it. Folks, that's when something like this catches people napping. Mr. Unger, nearing a corner, it collapsed. Uh, Mr. Park, still not being a damn engineer, but trying his best to help, and the rest of the men continued working until they just couldn't go anymore to save the face of the dam. They finally gave up at about 1.30 in the afternoon, fearing that their efforts were futile and the dam was at risk of imminent collapse mr unger ordered everybody to run for it and head for high ground there was nothing left to do but watch during the day in johnstown water jumped out of its creek banks and rose to as high as 10 feet on the streets which trapped many of the people in their houses and then at about 2.55 p.m., the South Fork Dam completely liquefied and let go of 3.8 billion gallons of water, which took about 65 minutes for the lake and the backed-up water to empty. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. first town to be hit by the flood was South Fork. The town was on high ground and most of the people escaped by running up the nearby hills when they saw the dam spell over. I guess they wasn't sure about the wolf cry after all and had some folks watching just in case. Good thing they did. Between 20 and 30 houses were completely destroyed and washed away and four people were killed. That didn't even phase the flow of water, mud, debris, and that didn't phase none of it in the least. It continued on toward Georgetown like it was on the way to a church dinner complete with Colonel Sanders' fried chicken, and nobody better get in its way. At what is known as the Kanama Viaduct, which is a 78-foot-high railroad bridge, the flood momentarily met its match when all of the debris it had picked up jammed against the stone bridge's arch. 
Yes, folks, 78 feet high. It essentially built itself a dam that held and stopped it right there. Well, for about seven minutes. The strong, well-constructed stone rail railroad bridge viaduct <clears throat> uh, finally collapsed, allowing the wall of water to resume course. Now, due to the delay at the stone arch, the flood waters gained a whole new, stronger wall of water and was uh, bigger than before. The small town of Mineral Point, one mile below the viaduct, was the first one on the list to be hit and with its renewed force. About 40 families lived in the village's only street. The flood liquefied the entire town. Not a single structure was left standing. Folks had even ripped up every inch of topsoil and subsoil off the ground and took it with it on the way to Johnstown. The only thing left was bedrock. Not a thing in the world left after that. The death toll there was about 16 people. Studies showed that the flow rate of the water through the narrow valley exceeded 420,000 cubic feet. Typically, the Mississippi River at its delta uh, is about 250,000 cubic feet. So that was one whale of a flood, folks. The village of East Kanama was the next populated area to fall victim to the flood. One witness on high ground near the town described the water as almost obscured by debris it carried with it. It looked like a huge hill rolling over and over itself. While sitting in his locomotive at the town's railroad yard, engineer John Hess heard and felt the rumbling of the whole mess bearing down on him. He immediately threw his locomotive into reverse, floored it, and raced backwards toward Canama, the or East Canama. The whistle blowing nonstop. His warning saved many of the people who ran for high ground. When the monster hit, it picked up the still-moving locomotive completely off the tracks and drove it aside like it was nothing more than a matchbox toy. Mr. Hess himself survived, but at least 50 people died, including about 25 passengers stranded on trains in the village. Before hitting the main part of Johnstown, the flood plowed through the Cambria Iron Works in the town of Woodvale, sweeping up railroad cars and barbed wire. Of Woodvale's 1,100 residents, 30, 314 people died in the flood. Folks, that's about 30% of the entire town. Boilers exploded when the flood hit the Gaudier wire works, causing black smoke to be seen by Johnstown residents. Miles of barbed wire became entangled in the debris of the flood water. 57 minutes after the dam collapsed, the flood hit Johnstown like about a thousand runaway locomotives. Residents were caught by surprise as the wall of water along with the 33 locomotives, 200,000 tons of barbed wire, telegraph and power lines, dead bodies of humans, animals, it, and it carried with it all bore down on about 40 miles an hour, reaching a height of about 60 feet in places. My gosh. Some people realized the danger and made a break for it by running toward high ground, but most were cut down by the flood waters in mid-stride. Many people were crushed by pieces of debris, and others became caught in the barbed wire before the wire factory or from the wire factory upstream, and they drowned because of that. Those who reached attics and roofs or managed to stay afloat on pieces of floating debris waited hours for help to arrive. At Johnstown, the stone bridge, which was a substantial arch structure, 
handmade and carried the Pennsylvania Railroad across the Kanama River is where the flood got caught up again. All of the debris carried by the flood formed another temporary dam at the bridge, resulting in the flood surge rolling upstream along the Stony Creek. Yes, it caused Stony Creek River to literally run backwards, folks. Eventually, though, gravity did take over and the surge came back to the Stone Arch Bridge. This resulted in a second wave that hit the city from a different direction. Now you'd think that after being dragged out of town by a torrent of water and anything else that happened to be caught up in the mess and barely clinging to anything you could find and finally make it to the stone bridge where you were lucky enough to still be alive, that would be about as bad as it could get and you could just call it a day. But I wouldn't still be here talking if that was it, yet would I? Because that's when all of the people who were lucky enough to do just that, what I described to you just now, became trapped in a hellish inferno as the debris that piled up against the bridge caught fire. At least 80 people died from that alone. The fire burned for three days before anybody could even think about getting to it and putting it out. Or they were just left helpless. After flood waters receded, the pile of debris at the bridge covered 30 acres and reached about 70 feet high. It took workers three months to remove the monstrous amount of debris. One of the biggest obstacles was a huge amount of barbed wire from the iron works, which the flood was good enough to wrap the whole thing around like a Christmas present. They finally had to use dynamite to blast some of it into bits and they'd be able to remove it. The total death toll from the flood was calculated originally at 2,209 people, making the disaster the largest loss of civilian life in the U.S. at the time. The number of deaths was later surpassed by fatalities in the 1900 Galveston hurricane and the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. There was one man reported as dead and not found, who were not found and had actually survived. Leroy Temple returned to Johnstown 11 years after the disaster and revealed that he had extricated himself from the flood debris at the Stone Bridge, walked out of the valley, and moved to Beverly, Massachusetts. So the official death toll should be about 2,208. We wouldn't want to overstate anything about the devastation now, would we? According to records compiled by the Johnstown Area Heritage Association, bodies were found as far away as Cincinnati, Ohio, and as late as 1911. Ninety-nine entire families were wiped from the face of the earth, including 396 children. 124 women and 198 men were widowed, 98 children were orphaned, and one-third of the dead, which is 777 people, were never identified. The remains were buried in the plot of the unknown at Johnstown Grandview Cemetery where they rest to this day. On June 5, 1889, five days after the flood, the American Society of Civil Engineers appointed a committee of four prominent engineers to investigate the case of the disaster or the cause of the disaster. The committee was led by the esteemed hydro engineer James B. Francis, best known for his work related to canals flood control, turbine design, dam construction, and hydrologic calculations. 
folks, this guy must have been up there with Albert Einstein on the math work because I've worked with some of these calculations and they look like the entire Magna Carta all written down on a half a page. Thank God in heaven I have a calculator or my head would have exploded. Mr. Francis was a founding member of the society and served as a president of from November to eight, of 1880 to January of 1882. The committee visited the site of the South Fork Dam once it was safe to do so, which was about 10 days later, where they reviewed the original engineering design of the dam and modifications made during the repairs. They interviewed eyewitnesses, commissioned a topographical survey of the dam remnants, and performed hydrological calculations, which would have taken me an extra week, and then I wouldn't be sure that they were right anyway. The ASCE committee completed their investigation report on January 15, 1890, but its final report was sealed and not shared with other ASCE members or the public. Of course it was. That just proves to me that there must have been some kind of influential members of the Hunt and Fish Club that wasn't about to be held responsible for any of it. At ASCE's annual convention in June of 1890, committee member Max Becker was quoted as saying, We will hardly publish our investigation report this session unless pressed to do so, as we don't want to become involved in any litigation. I wouldn't want to point the finger at anybody, would we? Although many ASCE members demanded to see that report, it was not published in the Society's Transactions until two years after the disaster in 1891. Got to give the influential time to influence, don't we? William Shin, a member, a former, former partner of the industrialist Andrew Carnegie, who just happened to be a member of the Hunt and Fish Club, became the new president of the ASCE in January of 1890. He passed the buck as he gave the investigation report to outgoing Mr. Becker, who decided uh, when to release it to the public. Mr. Becker kept it under wraps until the time of ASCE's convention in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1891. Then the long-awaited report was presented at this meeting by James Francis. The other three investigators, William Morthen, Alphonse Tetley, and Max Becker, well, they didn't show up, just in case there might be some questions. In their final report, the committee concluded that the dam would have failed even if it had been maintained with the original design specifications. So, we the people, being the simps that we are, are supposed to believe that even with a higher embankment crest and with five large discharge pipes at the dam's base, along with it being sealed by a rolled clay system, would have just up and let go anyway. No harm, no foul, huh? Of course, you better believe that this claim has since been challenged more than a few times. A hydrologic analysis published in 2016 confirmed that the changes made to the dam by the South Park Fishing and Hunting Club severely reduced its ability to withstand major storms. Changing the dam such as they did and failing to replace the discharge pipes at its base cut the dam's safe discharge capacity of less than half. This fatal change of the dam greatly reduced the capacity of the main spillway and virtually eliminated the action of an emergency spillway in the western abutment. In the years following the disaster, some survivors blamed the members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club for their modifications to the dam. 
they were accused of failing to maintain the dam properly so that it was unable to contain in additional water the additional water of the unusually heavy rainfall they decided to sue the pants off of them of course the club was successfully defended by in court by the firm of knox and reed whose partners philander knox and james hay reed were both club members of course knox and reed successfully argued that the dam's failure was a natural disaster which was an act of god and so no legal compensation was paid to the survivors of the flood no not one penny folks in fact the club was never held legally responsible for the disaster in any way shape manner nor form the whole mess led to an acceptance in later cases of strict joint and several liability that not that even a non-negligent defendant could be held liable for damage caused by an unnatural use of land in other words an act of god nonetheless individual members of the south fork club who were millionaires in their own right contributed to the recovery of johnstown along with about half the club members co-founder henry clay frick donated thousands of dollars to the relief effort after the flood andrew carnegie built the town a new library and by the way this was the first disaster visited by the red cross in the long run good building codes were written for the safety of others of course depending on where you live in these united states also depends on just how invasive and out of bounds these codes can now be nowadays i hope you enjoyed our story if you have please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to follow us on whatever you're listening on please join us face on facebook group appalachian murder mystery and legend podcast where we can discuss anything appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about i'll be back real soon with another appalachian murder mystery or legend and i'll see you then